Um, here it is. Ready? Australians all let us rejoice, for we are young and free. We've golden soil and wealth for toil. Our home is girt by sea. Our land abounds in nature's gifts of beauty rich and rare. In history, history's page, let every stage advance Australia fair in joyful strains. Then let us sing advance Australia fair. Beneath our radiant southern cross, we'll toil with heart and hands to make this commonwealth of ours renowned of all the lands. For those who've come across the seas, I don't know where the, the comment, we've boundless plains to share with courage. Let us all combine to advance Australia fair in joyful strains. Then let us sing advance Australia fair. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you do know it. I hope some of you know it. Um, we, we, it's played at every high-profile event in our country, right? Every school assembly, at least I think, um, still does, uh, sings our national anthem. And I'm sure you've noticed, or even if you haven't, as you're looking at the lyrics there, uh, this anthem, this song, what is it about? It's about how to live the Australian good life. You notice? It's about how to live the Australian good life. Right? Um, it's about the Aussie good life is about rejoicing and freedom. It's about patriotic toil, enjoying the beauty of nature that surrounds us. It's about having courage and having the desire to make this country renowned to advance the affairs of Australia. Yeah? Now, whether you agree with this or not, that's, that that's the Aussie good life, or whether you even think this should be our anthem or not, I know that's been a discussion of late, right? this song tries to point out and to teach us what it means to live the Aussie good life. Now, I bring that up because um, the book of Philippians, which we're beginning a new series in over the month of March, um, it does something quite similar. It doesn't quite teach us how to live the Aussie good life, no, but, but Paul, as he writes this letter to this church in the city of Philippi that he dearly, dearly loves, he gives them a treasure chest, really, of how to live good news lives. Yeah, good news lives. And so over the next few weeks, as a church, we're going to unpack some of those gems of what that looks like together. Now, just to let you know... Um, how we're doing this is midweek community groups and Sunday gatherings will be complementing each other over the month. Yeah? So, so this week, earlier in our community groups, many would have studied the first half of Philippians chapter 1. You notice that we started reading from verse 12. And so we're going to be picking that up today from verse 12. Now, why do I say this? Well, if you want to make the most of our time in this letter, in this book, um, really, the best thing to do is to actually join a community group, right? If you only come on a Sunday over this month, what you're going to get is you're only going to get half the book. Right? It's kind of like reading half of any book or watching half of any movie. It, you know, it's okay, but it doesn't quite work. Right? And so our community groups have just started up. If you're interested, speak to me, speak to Pastor Marshall. If you're interested, okay, promo's over. Um, but here's the thing. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians over the month, and we're going to be looking at how to live good news lives. So here's the roadmap for today. Uh, we are going to be looking at the principle behind the good news life. Uh, we're then going to see the how that principle applies to Paul as he writes this letter to the church. And then finally, we're going to consider what that looks like for us. Yeah, so the principle behind the good news life, what that looks like for Paul, and what that looks like for us. Uh, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would speak powerfully to us. We pray for a firmer and a clearer grasp of the life that you designed it to be. Father, we pray for humble hearts, hearts that are willing to bend uh, to where you are leading it to bend, that is willing to repent where you are leading us to repent, that is willing to obey where you are asking us to obey. 
We do this so that we might live more and more in line with the hope that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, let's begin with our first point, the principle behind the good news life. Yeah, the principle behind the good news life. Uh, in our passage, the Apostle Paul, he says, he says a bunch of things, but uh, he, he only gives one command to the church. Yeah, and one command really for us to consider, and it's in verse 27. Uh, he writes this, that whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's worth slowing down and really wrestling with that together because I believe that this really is the key verse um, of at least this chapter, if not the entire letter, right? See, before we can think about how we live good news lives with all the diversity that's represented among us here and in the hall and online, right, uh, we have to be first familiar, be familiar with what the good news life ought to look like for all of us. Yeah, and I think this singular verse that Paul gives towards the end of chapter 1 summarizes that perfectly. Uh, but what does this mean? Right, what does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, let's begin by reflecting on what it doesn't mean. Yeah? What it doesn't mean. Uh, see, on first glance, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we can understand that as Paul's saying, right, we need to conduct ourselves uh, to become worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can read that. We need to conduct ourselves to become worthy of the gospel of Christ. And until we've done that, we are not worthy of the gospel of Christ. uh, That in some way, right, we are um, deficient maybe in our worthiness, uh, and we need to make that up. We need to make that deficiency up by doing what he says to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy. And it's pretty understandable. We might think like this because, you know, if we, if we are, want to be worthy of a second date, we have to do the work on the first date to merit having a second, right? Uh, if we want to be worthy of respect or a promotion, we need to have proven ourselves to be suitable to receive that. But Paul isn't saying that here, right? He isn't. He isn't saying that we are deficient in our worthiness in the sense that we need to do something in order to make up for it. No, Uh, Paul is saying that we are deficient in our worthiness more so because, and this is key, because we are out of balance with it. We are out of balance with it. And that's a a big difference. Now, what do I mean by that? See, um, friends, the the meaning of the original word that we have translated as worthy in this verse has this idea of a set of scales that are in balance. Yeah, Kind of, kind of like these old school scales um, where you have an object or a weight and you've got to balance it by placing something similar in weight on the other side. Yeah. Now, uh, see, for Paul, he's saying that every person who follows Jesus, on one side of that scale, we have the gospel of Christ. Right? We have the good news that God did not spare Even his own son, the very son of God, was sent for us. He came to dwell as one of us, to die for us in our place, to rise to glory so that even though we were once enemies of God, rightly condemned by God, wanting absolutely nothing to do with God, now because that Jesus did all of that, we can now know God. We can be restored to God. We can reign with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that sits on one side of the scale. Which, by the way, if you're here and you don't call yourself a Christian yet, if you're exploring, if you're coming along to fresh at the moment, you know what? We pray that as you keep investigating and exploring that good news, that you might someday soon see that as good news and accept it for yourself. But here Paul is going. He's saying, hey, church at Philippi, Sweck, 
Would you live your life in such a way that balances that gospel that you have? Would you consider that good news on one side and then would you put your life on the other side and conduct yourselves so that they are balanced? To use another picture, Paul is going, would you conduct your life so that it is in harmony with the melody of the gospel? A melody that's beautifully written, it's great, but its beauty is seen more clearly when there's a balanced harmony that's parallel to it. See, friends, Paul isn't asking the church or us He's not saying, hey, make yourselves more worthy. Paul is telling the church that trust Jesus already to live balanced with the worthiness that we've already been given. And so as he says, verse 27, he says, conduct yourselves in such a way that is balanced, consistent, harmonious to the saving good news that you already treasure. That's what it means to live a life worthy, to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, you might be going, hey, Dom, that's that's great. That's well and good. That's a nice and neat and a clean principle. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave things in theoretical land. In in actual fact, because we've jumped straight to verse 27, I've jumped the gun. uh, Because what he does before he gets to verse 27, that command, is through verses 12 through to 26... He shows over and over and over again some of the way that he, as the apostle, with everything that's going on for him, how he's living a life balanced, harmonious, consistent with the gospel. And he doesn't say that stuff to boast. Right? He's the church's spiritual father. He plants this church. He's, part, he's the pastor of this church. And because he loves this church, he wants to be leading in such a way that not only will they hear and read the command that he gives, but they'll see it lived and worked out even with everything Paul is currently facing. And so let's have a closer look at what Paul does face in our second point. What does the principle look like for Paul? What does that principle look like for Paul? Because Paul shows us that his current situation, it's not that ideal. He's really up against it. Early in our passage, we see the apostle, um, the one chosen by God to plant churches and to preach the good news that we've just talked about in distant lands. Where is he? He's bound in prison, maybe in Rome, maybe in Ephesus. He's held captive by the very guards who would also protect the Roman emperor. We also see that while the apostle is in prison, what's going on? He's actually being attacked, not by outsiders, but by people from within the church, by leaders most likely who out of rivalry, who out of envy, out of ambition, maybe to elevate their stature, they're making the most of the fact that Paul is now sidelined in prison and, he's, and they're pushing Paul down while trying to lift themselves up. They could be accusing his character or his ministry because surely you know, someone chosen by God to be an apostle wouldn't be rotting in prison. Maybe they're jealous of his success and they're now trying to catch up in their influence. Whatever it is, being imprisoned now makes Paul an easy target. And it's those that are meant to be with him that are attacking him. But there's more that he's going through at the moment, right? So in addition to these things, he also reveals to the church, what is he doing? He's reflecting now about death. He's reflecting about death. Now, don't get me wrong, it's actually a pretty helpful thing from time to time to reflect about death, right? You're not meant to drown yourself in those thoughts, but every now and again, it's actually really good for the soul to remember that, you know, life is short, to remind us that we're fragile people, 
uh, to move away from self-sufficiency. But Paul's not doing that here, is he? Paul's not thinking about death as some sort of discipline for the soul. He's actively thinking about death. Why? Because this this genuinely could be it for him. His imprisonment in in jail could very well lead to his execution. He doesn't know. And so as you piece these things together for what's going on for the apostle, yeah? He's in chains. He's being attacked by Christian leaders. Death is a very real prospect as he's writing this letter to this church. And there's probably even more that he hasn't written in this letter. How does the apostle, with all those circumstances going on for him, How does he conduct himself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? How does he do that? Because truth be told, I don't know about you, if I were in Paul's shoes, if I were facing everything that he's facing, conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, living balanced in harmony with with the good news, that's not at the front of my thinking. But what does Paul do? How does he, with all those pressures, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, let's take a close look at each individual struggle in verses 12 to 26 and see, right? So firstly, on his imprisonment. On his imprisonment, um, what does Paul say? Have a look at verses 12 to 14 with me. Let's read it. And now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's going, you might think that being in chains, that's quenched my fire. You might be concerned that I'm depressed at the blow that this is to the gospel. But I want you to know that what has actually happened to me has served what to advance the gospel. Now, it's quite remarkable. This isn't Paul just being the, an optimist, by the way, right? He's not just looking for the positive silver lining here. No, he, he is really chained. He is really held captive. And it's a terrifying and a terrible thing. But Paul tells us four words, and it's in verse 16, that tell us that this isn't just mere optimism. Yeah? Have a look at verse 16. Paul says there four words, four little words. He says, I am put here. I am put here. Like you are put in your places of responsibility by God. Like you are put in your families by God. Like you are put in your streets, in your neighborhoods, at your work, in your friendships, in your ministry areas, in your circumstances of life. Paul sees that even in this darkest of place, that it is God that has placed him here. That it is God that has put him here. And he's put him here not to be defeated. He's been put there, as we will see, to advance the gospel. Now, you know, Paul, like anybody, he probably wishes he was free. He's probably praying for deliverance still. And yet, because he knows that it is God who has put him there, he can act, he can speak, he can pray, he can write from the perspective that, you know what, the gospel can still advance even while I'm in chains. And he's already seeing it. Right? He's already seeing it. What does he say? He says, the entire guard, those elite palace guards that are like the ancient equivalent of the Navy SEALs and the Secret Service, right? they're now hearing the gospel because he's in chains For the first time. Paul's praying for these uh, uh, guards, their families, their lives probably. He's he's showing them a patience, a courage, a perseverance that can only come from knowing that he's been put there in prison by God. He's the captive, right? 
But now he's got a captive audience in these guards. What's more, there are now those who are emboldened outside to share on their own. Believers are hearing what's going on with the palace guard. And they're going, well, if Paul has provided, sorry, if God has provided for Paul, even in prison, like that, then surely he can provide for me in my circumstance. Let me go and be bolder too. And so they're growing in their confidence of who God is. And as they're growing in their confidence, they are growing in their confidence that they've been put where they are to also advance the gospel. See, how does Paul conduct himself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even in chains? He still pursues the advance and the progress of that very gospel, even in the, unlikeliness, in the unlikeliest of places. And he rejoices that that same gospel is progressing even while he might be sidelined. Right? So that's the first sort of event, right? He, in his chains, that's how he acts in a manner worthy. Well, what about the attacks by those in the church? Yeah, what about the attacks of those in the church? Uh, have a look at verses 15 to 18. 15 to 18, Paul writes, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, as he's looking at these leaders that are attacking him, he is not calling the Philippians to imitate them and their motivations, right? He's not doing that, right? In chapter 4, he'll actually go on to tell the Philippians, hey, you know what? You should think about whatever is pure, right? And that word he uses for whatever is pure, that pure bit, that's the same word that he uses here describing their not sincere motives, right? Paul wants the Philippians to be the very opposite of these preachers and leaders. But you know what? Paul is saying to them, to the church, you might be worried that Others are now competing with me. That they're now dragging my name through mud. That they're trying to get the better of me when I can't even defend myself. But here's the thing. While I am being undermined, Jesus isn't. While I am being put down, Jesus is being lifted up. In actual fact, Jesus is being preached all the more. And so I can rejoice. Right? Paul could have easily retaliated. Yeah, He's a he's mighty apostle. Paul could have easily wrote a condemning letter about them and their ministries, or he could have told his followers to avoid these preachers and leaders like the plague. But for Paul to respond that way, even though it was probably easier for him to do it like that, he wouldn't be living in harmony with the gospel that he believes. To respond like that would be out of balance with believing in a Savior that saved the likes of him, who he describes elsewhere as the very worst of sinners. See, Paul's aspirations are no longer about his renown, about his name, about his glory. Because of the gospel, these now sit on the margins, if at all. So long as Jesus is getting those things, he will rejoice and even bear with being attacked. That's his imprisonment. That's being attacked from believers. What about in the face of probable death? How does he conduct himself in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, at the center of his response is a very familiar verse, probably, for many of us. Verse 21, uh, Paul says, For To me, what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, how can Paul say something like that? 
Well, at the end of verse 19 and going into verse 20, we see that Paul is confident he's going to be delivered. Right? Not from jail, but delivered because he's, he believes he's going to be vindicated. Yeah. See, the way that, the way the church was praying for him, the way that he saw God had been acting, the way that Paul expects that he hasn't brought shame to Jesus, the way that he wants Jesus to be exalted in his life, and even if it means dying, means that Paul expects God to vindicate him. Maybe in life, in a courtroom, but definitely in death, in God's courtroom. Right? And so we've got to ask why. It's got to be a bit strange to think like that, but Paul spells it out. He says in verse 22, hey, you know what? If I keep living... That's going to just mean fruitful labor for me. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. I'm going to keep declaring Jesus. I'm going to keep ministering like Jesus. I'm going to keep discipling so people will grow more to be like Jesus. And if I die, well, verse 23, I get to depart and see and be with Jesus. See, for Paul, in the face of death, he can only see it as gain. It's a source of joy. Not because he's trying to escape his imprisonment or his troubles, but because he gets to finally be with Jesus. And so for Paul, that's better by far. Right. Years ago, there was a um, famous minister in Chicago, he, uh, and he was dying, and he wrote um, this. He said something, sorry, that captures it quite well. He said, pretty soon, you're going to read in the Chicago papers that Dwight Moody, that's his name, is dead. Don't you believe it, he writes. I will be more alive than I am right now. Right? Even in the face of death, Paul is saying, you know what, I can still live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's gain. I desire it. And it's better by far. But he doesn't just stop there, because while death is gain for Paul, pick up what he then says from verse 24. Verse 24, Paul writes this, But, even though death is gain, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for what? Your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Right? Paul is saying something quite remarkable. He's just said, he's just said that, you know what, dying is gain for me, and yet it is more necessary that I remain. Because it's necessary for your progress. It's necessary for your joy in the faith. Right? When's the last time you saw something that is clearly to your benefit? Nothing illegal. Nothing unethical. Nothing irresponsible. Just a choice between two good options. And you've taken the one that is clearly not to your benefit. And that's what Paul does here. Paul says, I choose what is not best for me. I choose not what I desire. I choose what is best for you. You see, Paul's decision revolves around the well-being of those in this church rather than his own. And so then he goes on to say, I choose this so that your boast in Christ Jesus will abound. That's a bit of a weird expression, isn't it? But Paul's basically saying, hey, the Philippian church, I choose your well-being over mine. I choose to remain and depart. I choose your progress and joy above even my desires, not so that you make more of me, or to be more proud to be in my presence, or to boast that you are connected with me, but so that you grow to make more of Jesus, to be proud to be in his presence, to abound in boasting that you are with him. See, that's how Paul makes his decision. And, and it sounds quite a lot like our Lord Jesus, doesn't it? The one who chose our well-being above his, who chose to leave the throne room of heaven rather than stay, who chose our progress and our joy 
above what was beneficial to him. See, Paul, in denying himself, even in the face of death, he's making decisions balanced, remember, with the gospel of Jesus. Now, there's a lot there, yeah? Um, And if you fell asleep, that's all, but I'm going to summarize it now. If the principle of the good news life is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then Paul models to us what that looks like, even with everything that he's going through. Right? While he's in chains, while he's being attacked and hated, on the brink of probable death, what does he do? He still pursues the advancement of the gospel. He still rejoices at the advancement of gospel, even while he's slandered along the way. He sees death as gain, and still at that point chooses to act in the interest of the church above and beyond his own preferences so that they might boast in Jesus. So that's the principle for Paul. And so as we turn now to the third point, yeah, the principle for us, what will conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ look like for you, for me, for our church? Because if we're honest with ourselves, just like bits of the Bible that are more and more, you know, you just see it, right? There are so many bits of the Bible that are more and more out of step with society, more out of, more out of step with culture. That, that gap can be a little bit awkward. That gap can be a little bit difficult. But passages like this, seeing Paul's life, it shows us that there can also be quite a gap between the bits of the Bible and from us. But Paul just seems... So out there. And he is, right? I mean, after all, he's a first century apostle dealing with first century concerns, dealing with the establishment of a baby church, right? There are experiences and things that Paul wrestles with that has to be radically different to what we experience. But as we've seen, it's also very out there because the way that Paul prioritizes things, the way that he makes decisions, uh, the mindset that he has, that's also really different from many of us. And that can be awkward because we know that's not a first century, 21st century divide. That's got far more to do with living unbalanced and out of harmony with the gospel that we actually believe. And so how, by God's strength, can we begin to close some of that gap? Yeah. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to suggest three points of self-examination. Um, but I'm going to... Uh, but we're going to focus on how we think about how we make decisions. Because we all got to make decisions, um, regardless of the season of life, stage of life. We all need to make decisions. So how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ in our decision-making? Right? Um, three points for you to think through. Very brief. Firstly, um, examine your decision-making to see what you are living for. Yeah? Examine your decision-making to see what you are living for. What does Paul say? For him to live is Christ and die is gain. Which logically means that if for us, living is mostly about leisure, if living is mostly about security or mostly for comfort or mostly about adventure-seeking, if living is mostly about our career, or if living is just about the weekend or our holidays... If living is even mostly just about our family, well, where does that leave the dying part if the living is about that? Well, the dying is not a gain anymore. For Paul, it's loss. Now, of course, none of those things I've mentioned, we, sh- we shouldn't be despising those things. We're not monks. Right? God isn't, the, isn't in the business of being a killjoy that doesn't want us to have those things in life. 
But we have got to diagnose, I think, whether, we, whether these things have actually squeezed or even choked out the most essential part of our living as the saved people of God. That, like Paul, living is Christ. It's for Jesus. And really, there's no better tool to see what you are living for in 4K than by diagnosing what's driving your own decision-making. Right? How do you decide where to live? How do you decide where you'll send your kids to school? How do you decide who will remain your friends? How do you decide what job opportunities to take or who might you marry or what you're going to do in retirement? How are you going to spend your time and your money? Right? Every decision you make is an opportunity to express that living is Christ. So we've got to think hard about examining what you're living for. But the second thing, briefly, is examine your decision-making in relation to the advancement of the gospel. Yeah? Uh, examine your decision-making in relation to the advancement of the gospel. See, Paul knew that he was in chains. Why? Because God put him there for the advancement of the gospel. Paul could rejoice that the gospel was advancing even when he was sidelined and being attacked. Because his joy was in that in the gospel being advanced, so even his bruised feelings, even being held captive, it can't be taken away. And so, for us, how do you decide who are your closest friends? How do you decide who's going to be in your inner circle, right? right? Those who inevitably shape you, who challenge you, who stimulate you? Right? Is the advancement of the gospel for you just a solo project? Or are you doing it with people that deeply care too? Right, for those of you who are thinking about what church to join, how do you decide which church to join? What factors are at play? Is it one that seeks to advance the gospel first and foremost? How do you decide what causes to give to? Yeah, do you factor in those that simultaneously seek to advance the gospel? How do you evaluate um, where God has currently put you? by thinking about what opportunities to advance the gospel there is where God has put you. Yeah? And thirdly, and finally, examine your decision-making in relation to the church that you're committed to. Yeah? Examine your decision-making in relation to the church that you're committed to. You see, Paul preferred and desired to depart and be with Christ, and yet he was willing to give that up for the joy and progress of the Philippian church. See, friends, would we expand our decision-making criteria to go beyond thinking about ourselves and our families, which are good things to do, by the way, but to expand that or to also think about considering, hey, you know what, in my decision, how does that impact the family of God that I call my church, that I call my home? That's super unnatural to think about. Right? In a city like Sydney, where there are several churches in just about every suburb, right, it's even more unnatural to think about it. And there's a lot we could say about this, but I'm just going to I'm just going to end with this. Um, when we are making a decision, we would be taking massive, massive strides if we simply added and prayed um, the following thoughts. Right? What would be best for my church in this decision? How would this decision, what would be in my, sorry, in this decision, what would be best for my brothers and sisters in Christ? In this decision, what would be of most benefit for them? Even if it might be at the expense of what I would most naturally prefer. And I was really encouraged um, 
a couple of weeks ago, I won't name them, um, but uh, I was having lunch with um, uh, several people after church, and um, they mentioned to me that, um, uh, that since getting married, um, they decided to remain at the church that they were at. They already decided that it was the best thing for them and their marriage to move on. But they said, we have decided to stay for a couple of extra years before we left because we wanted to leave in such a way that we have trained up a bunch of leaders so that this church is stronger for it before we leave. What is of most benefit to them? To just have gone immediately. We're married, we want to start this new life, so we're just going to change church. But they thought about, hey, what's best for my brothers and sisters in Christ? What's best for my church at this moment? Well, you know what? It's to stay. It's to invest. It's to sow. It's to give two to three years to this so that when we leave, things are better for it. Friends, we God enable us to live lives balanced and worthy of the gospel of Christ that we believe. Amen. The bad's going to lead us in a, um, a song of response.